Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting, informative episode of That's Truth. I hope you're having a good week, and I am glad that you have made the time on this Tuesday evening to tune into the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and to listen to the program That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens, and I'm sitting behind the desk of the at the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening. We're so thankful you're allowing us to be in your home this evening. We will, at some point in the future, return to a similar topic as to what we were discussing last week about helping people with their troubles in life. But tonight we're going to be discussing a topic which has evoked a lot of emotion in some people. It has definitely caused some disagreements or arguments in the past at times. And that topic is feminism. What does the Bible say about feminism? Pastor, before we go any further in this topic, can you define for us what are we talking about here with feminism? Well, basically, feminism is a um, political, cultural, and economic movement that tries to establish uh, equality rights for women, and it's about protecting uh, the rights of women. Um, Initially, it started out um, about um, the idea of voting rights, uh, adult uh, female suffrage. Okay. That was the main purpose, and also um, it was about being able to deal with contracts, enter into contracts. Um, that was another major part, and then the idea of property rights. Uh, but that has evolved, and so many other factors have come in, uh, such as um, integrity of one's body and the autonomy to do with my body what I want to, the matter of abortion rights. Uh, reproductive rights, uh, where I should have access to contraception, and I should have quality prenatal care. And it has even gone further than that now. Uh, it's now beginning to tackle such things as domestic violence, uh, uh, sexual harassment in the workplace, uh, the issues of rape, uh, the rights within work for equal pay, etc. And, and it has actually gone even further now, where it wants to completely obliterate all distinctions between male and female, uh, whether that has to do with role or function. Uh, and uh, so any form of so-called discrimination that would differentiate between a male and, and a, a male and a female. So it's, it's something that started out initially to get gain political power um, by having voting rights. 
and then it has evolved and evolved and evolved to include a variety of matters relating to uh, women's rights and equality and the matter of protecting uh, women, etc. You familiar with the Me Too movement? Yeah. Would that be considered part of the feminism? I would, yeah, of course, definitely, because it has to do with the idea of the abuse of women um, um, by men, basically, mm-hmm. especially sexual abuse of men, women by men. And that is definitely a feminist movement that has now been has brought been now brought under the umbrella, and it's a powerful movement as you know it's brought on a lot of politicians, yeah. and virtually it is being used uh, even to um, if you have a political opponent opponent that you don't like, uh, they're even fostering that using um, falsehood and lies because it's a powerful tool uh, that women now have. And so it, it has been embraced by the, the feminist movement, no question about that. From a biblical perspective, though, punishing those who have assaulted, especially sexually assaulted women, is a good thing, right? Of course. I mean, uh, I don't think anybody is against some of the agenda. Um, certainly women ought to be protected. Uh, the issue of domestic violence is no question that there's a matter of serious. The idea of... Uh, um, equality of pay. I mean, if a person is equally qualified as a man, why should they not have the same payment as a man would have? But again, like everything else, we tend to go to extremes and the pendulum tends to go too far. And I think to a great extent, the feminist movement, um, the secular feminist movement has gone way too far where all distinctions are now being erased and the idea of staying home and taking care of a child, that is so demeaning and that is a uh, a male um, exploitation of women, etc., etc. I think that is totally extreme. The idea, that, again, uh, and I think all of this le- leads into the transgender movement as well. Uh, I mean, How so? Because if you if you if you got total male and female equality, there's no distinction between the males, mm-hmm. a male and a female. I mean, um, you can very well see where a person can can claim one moment he's a male, next moment he's a female, because there's no distinct the distinctions are gone. So I think when you erase those biblical distinctions that God has established, especially take physical distinctions, there's no question about it. It's the difference between a man and a woman, the way we think, the way we act, the way we behave, the way we perceive. All of those are di- differential things between a male and a female, but when you erase all of that now, you actually create a situation where um, there's no control as to what extent you can go. Would have you heard about those who are wanting to rewrite the Bible to get rid of any gender specific uh, yeah. pronouns when talking about yeah. God? No, no, that's another extreme view. Okay, right? because so. be, that's an extreme view again. Because because uh, you believe that, uh, well, we'll come to that at okay. some point in time, dealing with what is happening within the evangelical community, where uh, it's incredible that the secular feminist movement has now infiltrated the the church, and you now have an evangelical fe- feminist movement, and the whole idea is to uh, erase all distinctions in, in terms of function, rules, etc. So to tell a woman about submitting to a husband and that. He her head, that doesn't go well now with the evangelical community, feminist community. They believe that all those roles were done away with. Uh, And we'll talk about why that has happened. But uh, you can see very clearly that uh, that is why I said that uh, there are good things about it, but there are bad things about it. And we have to be able to take the take these matters to Scripture and examine them in the light of Scripture and to point out where they're deviating from Scripture and therefore wrong. Uh, I make no bones about it. If it is contrary to Scripture, 
it is wrong because the Bible is the standard by which we make those kind of decisions and make those kind of judgments. Can you make that statement, though, to a non-believer? Well, whether he's a, a, a believer or a, a non-believer or a believer or not doesn't change truth. Truth is truth. Fact is fact. The Bible is God's Word. Whether you accept it or not, it is God's Word. Um, but uh, again, I don't curtail my position to suit the audience. Uh, I am a firm believer in the infallibility of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, the universal application of the Bible, Bible principles to moral issues. So I'm not going to curtail my my view or my message because I'm speaking to a secular person. Uh, What he needs to do is to turn around. The Word of God is the absolute final standard. And by the way, I think this is why we are so confused in the West. There's no longer any standard we can apply. There was a time when we had a Judeo-Christian ethic. We understood that stealing was wrong, adultery was wrong, uh, fornication was wrong, murder was wrong. And we understood the, the need that when, when sin was committed, there needed to be some kind of consequence. Uh, that has all changed. That has all changed. It's not because the Bible has changed. It's because the spirit of the age has changed. The society has changed. We've moved away from Scripture. And we're at the point now where we are so confused that they don't have any answers for the the moral issues that we're currently facing. And believe me, there are far more serious moral issues coming in the future. And if we can't deal with these ones today, uh, we're headed to a real dismal uh, moral situation without any answers. And it's it's coming to the point where uh, man will be completely autonomous. And to, to tell somebody they're wrong or they're right, uh, would be seen as arrogance, and every man will have to decide for himself. We're per- pretty much there right now, yeah. and I think we, it's going to get worse. So a very practical question. If I'm witnessing to a, a non-believer who is antagonistic toward the biblical worldview, should I use the biblical worldview to defend what I believe, or should I try and use the world's logic what I would say in a situation like that is that um, you have to contrast the biblical worldview with the secular worldview, and you have to ask one question, which fits into the facts of reality. Uh, if you are saying there's no God and no morality, can we really live that way? Uh, so what if, if that's the case, that there's no God and no morality, what who decides then uh, is wrong for a guy to, who's working at the bank to fill for the funds? to embezzle the funds. Who decides uh, that it is okay for a man to cheat on his wife? I mean, where do you draw the line? Can you live in a real world where there are no morals? I, myself, decide on my morals. Uh, I am a little god. You're a little god. We got all the god. Pretty much the gods be fighting because you're going to have your view, I'm going to have my view, and we're going to have all these opinions, but no solutions. So there has to be a standard that we can all go to. And if you're dealing with that, you have to be able to pre- listen to the secular view, contrast the secular view with the Christian view, and ask yourself the question, which is more realistic and which fits into the facts of humanity? I think that's the only way to try to deal with it. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.42. If you would like to call and ask a question, you can call 1-268-462-7420. If you'd like to WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Or if you're joining us on Facebook Live, 
you can comment your question by the video feed and it'll get it passed along to Pastor Murphy. Again, we are talking about feminism this evening. Pastor, anything else you'd like to say about the start of feminism and how it progressed? You mentioned briefly in the introduction. Yeah, well, well, generally speaking, um, if you uh, check check the facts and maybe even Google it, you see that uh, they generally agree that the feminist movement has three waves uh, in other three different periods in which the feminist movement grew and what was the focus within those three two periods. The first wave is from the 1830s and the early 90s. Uh, and again, the main thrust there was to gain political power through female suffrage. The females, remember, that did not have a right to vote. Only men could vote. So the, the main thing was to bring women into the, into the full political realm. And women began to understand how much power they had because if it is one man, one vote, one woman, one vote, I don't have to tell you the, the, the population uh, proportion. That gave them a lot of political clout now that they had to vote. But as I mean, they were pushing for that in the 1930s and the, uh, 1830s and the 1900s. So the original focus was it started out to, to make sure that women could sign contracts and deal with contracts and that they could have property rights just like men would have. But the main thing became the focus of uh, female suffrage and the right to vote. Uh, that is the first wave in the 1830s, 1900s. The second wave is normally from 19, 1960s and 1980s. And this is um, coming after the Second World War, 1945, 1949. Um, the focus became now the workplace. Rather, not, They had now had the right to vote, so there's no longer they're moving. They want more power, more power, more influence. And now it came to the matter of, of the workplace, the matter of sexuality, the matter of the family and reproductive rights, uh, equality in that, that respect, respect. So it had to do with trying to pursue gender equality. And then the third wave is generally agreed from the 1990 up to, until the current time. So you've got the adult, I mean, female suffrage, you've got um, equality, you've got, uh, of the sexes, you've got uh, the whole matter of workplace, um, equal pay, etc. The fight now started to turn where all disparities now between male and female, we want those erased completely. It's not now that we, we had these, in other words, we're coming to the point now of really full equal, no distinction whatsoever between a male and a female. And of course, the matter of reproductive rights came in in this final phase and the issue of violence against women, uh, dealing with abuse and dealing with uh, harassment in the workplace, etc. So what started out as a right to vote, uh, the agenda began to broaden and within those different uh, periods, different issues were focused on as they got victory in those areas. They started expand, expanding the agenda, and the agenda today is still expanding, as we'll discover later. It, it goes far beyond this. Um, it's coming to the point now, Brother Nathan, where they want to remove uh, God. Uh, they want uh, no gender distinction in the Bible in terms of Godhood is concerned. So they don't want he to be called a he. Uh, and it's far more than that. Um, throughout the program, I hope you give us a chance to, to perhaps deal with that. But the agenda is uh, an agenda that keeps expanding and expanding and expanding. But the initial purpose was to have the, uh, the voting rights. And now, I noticed as you referenced the history of this movement, you're referencing everything in the state. So is it applicable to us here in the Caribbean? After all, this is the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Yeah, because you, I'm not too sure if you know this, but uh, I'm you might tonight be surprised that there are a lot of feminists 
in the Caribbean as well. Uh, gender fears. Uh, that is basically um, pushing uh, women's issues. Uh, so remember that everybody goes to the same schools. Uh, and remember that if America spits, we cash the coal down here. Whatever is the movement in America or England or Europe, it doesn't take long before it trickles down here. And now with the telecommunications, it used to take a few years. Now it just takes days to weeks. Uh, and um, so it affects us. And you're going to run into some at some point in time. You probably might hear some on the radio, and you'll probably get some callings tonight as well in connection with the fact that there are real people here who have their their feminists, and they want you to know that they're feminists, and they take a very strong stand against uh, male dominance and what they call the patriarchal society. And that carries over into religion, and they see Christianity as a male-dominated religion that suppressed women, and uh, kept them in bondage for years now that they're being liberated and uh, they want to purge the Bible of certain um, male features and so it begins to expand even in the area of religion. If that comment that Pastor made about uh, Christianity being male-dominated kind of piqued your interest or you've had people comment about that in the past, we did a program on the 20th of February 2018 about how Christianity elevated women. We won't have time to cover all of that information tonight for obvious reasons because we have additional information tonight, but you can go on Google and type in That's Truth podcast and search for the one, the episode. It would be episode number eight called How Christianity Has Elevated Women, and that will be a, a good resource for you going forward. Pastor, are there additional subgroups within the feminism movement? I know it's a very broad topic. Yeah. Well, feminism is a very broad term, and there are a lot of different groups or subgroups that belong to it. Uh, we already alluded to the secular feminists. Uh, these are people who do not accept the Bible as authoritative. And they're totally, um, their total agenda is completely secular. Uh, they're not religious. Then you've got religious feminists. These are individuals uh, who do not identify as Christians, but they have a religious worldview, uh, generally speaking. And then there are what you call Christian feminists. Uh, these are committed to the Christian faith and accept the authority of Scripture in a limited way. Uh, they claim to be Christians, but they don't believe that the Bible is absolute in authority and, uh, you know, it's like the liberal branch of the Christian church, the neo-Orthodox group of the Christian church, where the Bible becomes the Word of God as opposed to the Bible is the Word of God. So you've got uh, Christian feminists uh, who hold to the Christian faith, but who do not accept the Bible as final authority and limit the authority of the Bible. So there are certain things in the Bible that I can decide is not scriptural. It wasn't for our time. And that's what the feminist movement within the Christian circle is about. They still claim to be a Christian, but they believe that what Paul taught was not for our time, it was for Paul's time, and for the, the it dealt with a local situation, is not universal applicable to us. And then, of course, there's the evangelical feminist movement. They have a very high view of Scripture, uh, but the problem with them is that their interpretation of the Bible is done in such a way as to remove any distinction between 
a man's function and a man's role to put everybody on equality. So what we need to do is to understand that God has given to men gifts and women gifts. So we must function in the church according to our gifts, not according to our roles. So they they would say that you know we should we should have pastoral ministry should not be limited to men. Paul is a, sh- a chauvinist. Paul uh, was dealing with a local situation, a cultural situation. But what Paul taught in Timothy uh, should not be applied today. And they would skew their interpretation to fall in line with the feminist thinking. Uh, but but they have a high view of Scripture. It's just that their way of interpreting the Scripture uh, is a long uh, feminist hermeneutic as opposed to the, what is called the historical grammatical approach to interpreting the Bible. Pastor, is it possible to have a man who is a feminist, or do you have to be a woman? No, I think I think there are men feminists in the sense that not that they're feminine women, or, or not that they're feminine, or they're homosexual or bisexual. I think that they can hold the feminist views that we need to erase distinction between male and female, and we need to treat uh, uh, get away. We have a neutral gender in any case. I think there are men that push that. As a matter of fact. Some of the theologians that these feminists, evangelical feminists, rely on, these are men who also interpret the Bible uh, along a, a feminine hermeneutic as opposed to using the historical grammatical way of interpreting the Bible. And they have greatly assisted the evangelical feminist movement by helping them to interpret the Bible uh, in, in, in line with what the feminist agenda is, which is n- no rules, no functions, no distinctions, just operate on the basis of your gift. And uh, they find that these men have been very supportive of these women, so you can have a, a male feminist uh, person who pushes the feminist movement in terms of equality and rights. Uh, of course, you can have that. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 11:60 a.m., 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Time across the Eastern Caribbean, and in our studios on this Tuesday evening is 7:53. Go ahead and give us a call if you have any questions or if you have any input on this topic. You can call 1-268-462-7420 or you can WhatsApp or text 1-268-782-1454. Pastor, I think all of us are well aware of the fact that secular feminists can become very hostile toward the Bible and the church and the Christian worldview. Is there a short answer for why that is? Well, the thing about secular uh, feminists is that they have a profound grievance against God and the Scriptures. And the reason why they have this profound grievance against God and the Scriptures is because they believe that the Bible is a patriarchal uh, religion, and that uh, a male God dominates the Bible. Uh, They also feel that, and most of them concur, that because of this, the Bible has been a curse in humanity because it has been used to keep women down. And so they are determined either to do one or two things, to either alter the text itself, what the text means, or get rid of the text altogether. The whole idea is that they must obliterate God in the Bible because they see God and the Bible as the reason why women have been kept down for so many years and uh, this male patriarchal religion 
of the Bible is pretty much responsible for women's suppression for these many years. Um, let me quote one or two uh, to give you an idea. Uh, for example, the feminist writer uh, Naomi Goldberg, Goldenberg, uh, listen to her anti-God uh, language. She said, every woman working to improve her own position in society or that of a woman in general is bringing about the end of God. So that's the whole idea. uh, She's also anti-Bible. She said, all feminists are making the world less and less like the one described in the Bible and are thus helping to lessen the influence of Christ and Yahweh on humanity. See, see, the the idea is that the Christian religion, the Bible, has been a, mat- uh, a patriarchal book where dominant God is a male God, and uh, it, it it suppresses women and it has been detrimental uh, to the advancement of women. Um, let me read another one uh, to give you even greater the extent of the venom that they have against God. She goes on to say, "We women are going to bring an end to God." As we take positions in government, in medicine, in law, in business, and in art, and finally in religion, we will be the end of God. We will change the world so much that God will, will no longer fit in it in, anymore. In other words, we're going to remove this male-dominated God that you find in the Bible. And we will. how will we do that? Listen to it very carefully. We will do it because when we get into government, do you understand policy? It's governments that make policy. So when we get in those positions, we are going to be the lawmakers. See? So we are going to do that is why there is such an anti-God um, stance, uh, even in the U.S. Uh, government with so many politicians. They're, they're, a lot of them are feminists. The whole idea is we got to get rid of this God because this God has kept us down for so long. We need to remove this God, etc., etc. So you're saying there's almost an aspect of a spiritual battle going on here behind it, the scenes. Of course. All of these things that are happening on planet Earth, the Bible makes it quite clear that there's an infernal spirit operative bringing about an agenda that is contrary to Scripture and trying to undermine the integrity of God, the integrity of the Bible. This is not just men in flesh and blood fighting against uh, each other. This is a spiritual warfare. And you can be sure there's a genius mind behind all of this that is operative. So there's no doubt in my mind that the, the enemy, and you know, the Bible talks about the spirit of the age, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Uh, every age has a particular spirit. And when it talks about spirit, it's the thinking, the philosophy that dominates that particular time. And that philosophy is controlled by that infernal spirit. Uh, and uh, and uh, he, he, he brings them about disobedience. Um, let me give you another quote. Uh, this is from Cynthia Ellen. Uh, listen to her position. He said, religion with a male God is no religion for women. Um, he said, established religion has oppressed women, and this system of oppression can be finally summed up in a single metaphor, the maleness of God. See, this anti-male, anti-God, uh, this is the rhetoric coming from the secular uh, feminist. Um, that's the way they view religion in, in that regard. So the whole idea is is that they think that the Bible has degraded uh, women and suppressed women and uh, is anti-feminine because the God of the Bible 
is a male God, and the emphasis in the Bible is about men, and women play a minor role, men play a major role. There's another reason for this too, um, um, Nathan. It's not just the Bible itself. And I think sometimes um, uh, some of the church fathers, some of the uh, ancient leading Christians made some statements that are so anti-feminine in their rhetoric that the feminists have picked up on these quotes from what these men have written and said and used it against Christianity because these were some of the, the leading heads of the Christian church in ancient times. Take Ambrose, for example. Ambrose, remember, was the preacher that uh, was preaching when Augustine got converted, the great Augustine. But Ambrose, uh, listen, to, listen to something that he wrote, and I wonder sometimes why he would say this. He said, uh, whoever does not believe is a woman. The woman who believes is elevated to male completeness. Now you think that you take that for just a moment. I mean, why would you make a statement like that? But what he what he's saying that you know that we are mature in Christ. That's the the language. Yeah, yeah. So he uses that language now. But if a person doesn't understand the biblical language, this is totally anti-feminist uh, movement. I mean, this, a woman reading this, yeah. this song like madness for a, a, a man to say. Here, here's origin, origin, another um, church father. What is seen with the eye of the Creator is masculine and not feminine. For God does not stoop to look upon what is feminine and is in the flesh. Now imagine, imagine a, a feminine person reading this, a feminist reading this. Yeah. It arms her to say, you see what I'm telling you? Look at these Christians. These are the ones are supposed to be. So the, the rhetoric, the language that was used, um, pejorative language that was used uh, by some of these church fathers uh, has given ammunition to these feminists to come out against Christianity. Let me read another one. This is a guy called Epiphanius he, uh, from 315 to about 480. Uh, he said, For the female sex is easily seduced, weak, and without much understanding. That's his language. <laughs> again, if I was a woman reading that, I would feel insulted. Okay, But again, uh, we have a tendency as men to make statements that we don't understand the impact it can have. And remember that what we put in writing last long after we're gone. Yeah. And sometimes in the moment of the, 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 the language that we use, there might be a situation where we deal that we make that kind of language. These are ripped out of the context and then quoted as though it's in the, a normal thing that you would say, not looking at the context in which you said it. And so what has happened is that that has led them to... to and then the third thing, uh, Nathan, is that the idea of biblical submission... Um, does not run well with the modern woman. I don't have to tell you that. Right? Um, as a matter of fact, there are certain islands that I would, I would, I'm smiling when I'm saying that. That some men are very uh, reluctant to marry certain people because the women are so independent that really, in truth and fact, they don't intend to submit. And uh, they're going to find a hard time finding husbands. But the truth of the matter is, the new feminist movement, the, the secular feminist movement, is pushing equality to the point where uh, it's not as though you've got a male, as the Bible puts, and a female under in, 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 in the marriage. Uh, same thing in the church. It's not that you've got male leaders and, and females under the, in church leadership. They want all of that obliterated. So they feel, they feel that the Bible insistence on submission and that the man is the head 
and that uh, pastors are supposed to be men. That is a highly offensive to them. So they're, they're up in arms against Scripture. That's why they say we will either change what the Bible teaches, change the, the, the book, or we will get rid of the book altogether, get rid of God, because we cannot be, we can't push our dogma if this kind of teaching is against what you've been saying. And then the, the, the whole idea as well of um, restricting certain offices in the church to men. That's offensive to modern women because they got as good education we've got. They're just as smart as we are, sometimes even smarter. Mm-hmm. And they figure that they should, if, if, if a man can be a pastor, a woman can be a pastor as well. So they cannot countenance the idea that the pastor should be the husband of one wife. Uh, and that everything that Paul talks about has to do with uh, male leadership within the church. All of that. And then the other thing, of course, is that the, the Bible is against abortion. The Bible uh, sees abortion as murder and immoral. That's highly offensive to a modern woman who's a feminist. She feels she has a right over her body to do with her body whatever her, she wants to do with it. And whatever's in her belongs to her. She can do. That's the mindset of the modern woman. And so, again, what is against all of that is the book. So we've got to either change the book, we interpret the book, or we've got to get rid of the book altogether. This is why it is such a, an antipathy towards the Bible and towards God and towards Scripture, because it's against the agenda of the secular feminist movement that wants to do away with distinctions and functions and want to put uh, male and female at one level of equality. Pastor, i got a quote here from Christopher Hitchens when talking about uh, feminism and Christianity. He says, To terrify children with the image of hell and to consider women an inferior creation, is that good for the world? But I'm not too sure what he means by an inferior creation. Uh, it's very, very clear that Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. That's where you get your value and your worth from the fact that you, the women bear the image of God just like men bear but the, the image Bible of God. But the Bible says, is it Paul says the, the woman is the weaker vessel? Yeah, but everybody knows that. A, a woman is not physically as strong as a man. I, I don't think anybody would dispute that. No, they might have some women that are the exception. Don't misunderstand. They call the Amazon women, right? <laughs> but that's an exception. The ugliest thing I've ever seen is a woman bodybuilder. <laughs> I can't believe that anybody would think that's beauty. But that's beside the point. But uh, again, uh, Women are strong in some areas, stronger than men in some areas. Men are stronger in women in some areas. But in terms of uh, the weaker vessel, I don't think there's any question that when it comes to physical aspect. Uh, and then, uh, be very honest with you as well, uh, everybody would agree that substantially, uh, generally speaking, women are more emotional than men are. I mean, there's no dispute about that, right? Uh, there's no question well that, that men tend to be more able to reason out things objectively and set things aside. For a woman, everything is balled up in a ball of wax. Uh, she can't separate her emotions often uh, from those kinds. Of, so there are, but she has some strengths as well. She can bear more pain than we can, no question about that, generally speaking. I have told people this quite humorously, if a woman have one baby, <laughs> because that's almost a near-death experience. So they have gifts and qualities. That's why the Bible says, Eve was supposed to complement Adam. Where Adam was strong, he would help her in her weakness. Where she, Adam was weak, she would fill in that weakness. So they were supposed to complement each other, but a woman is not inferior in, in any way uh, to a man. And the, the, the idea that uh, the Bible uh, demeans women is, is totally ridiculous. As a matter of fact, 
I hope we get some time to go through how the Bible treats women and the prominent role that women are given in the Bible. It, it, it will stagger you, uh, really, in truth of fact. I think because we, the major actors, uh, the patriarchs, etc., et but you look at the support that they get from their wives and what their wives are the matter. You take Abraham, for example, I might use an example. You remember when Abraham um, had uh, listened to his wife and, and went into uh, Hagar? I mean, that was not a decision that he made. She just said, you're going to have children by for me. Yeah. I remember as well when Abraham loved his son and she said, get rid of him. Again, what happened? He did it. He did it. <laughs> so she had <laughs> tremendous power, right? Tremendous power, no question about that. So the idea that you have a patriarchal home and the men control the women, you read the Bible very carefully. It, it might sound good, might look good, but in actual fact, uh, women have always pulled the strings. As people say, the man is the head, but the woman is the neck. She controls. But uh, to the idea, uh, so I think it's not fear to say that the Bible demean women, etc., etc., and, and uh, make them uh, somewhat uh, inferior to men. I don't think that's a fair statement of Scripture, Don. Pastor, we have a text message that's come from St. Kitts. It says, Good night. Can you please tell me where I can find the phrase, the gospel is an offense to the unbeliever in the Bible? Uh, um, let me get on. I, I know the word, uh, the offense of the gospel. It's there. Paul talked about it. I can't give you the exact reference. But uh, what we can do is uh, use the concordance and check it up for the person and then pass it on to them. But that that is in there, the offense of the gospel. And, of course, it's referring the offense of the gospel. It doesn't say it to the unbeliever. But if you read it quite clear, it, there is that reference that it's an offense to the gospel. I know that Paul talked about that. Uh, as a matter of fact, Paul said, if you please men, uh, I think in that context, I uh, seek to please men, where would the offense of the gospel be? So I think we'll get it to him, get it to the person, uh, but I don't have it off my lip at this point in time. But it's there. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the beautiful island of Antigua. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.08, and we are discussing the topic of feminism, a very broad topic that has a lot of different facets and a lot of different areas of life. Pastor, what is it specifically, anything additional you'd like to add about why the secular feminists have an issue with the church as a whole? Well, again, the gist of it is what I just mentioned, but to summarize it basically is that the church has been uh, the main force that have kept women down over the years, uh, teaching the idea of submitting to husbands, teaching the idea that uh, men should be pastors, etc., etc., and teaching the idea that there's a functional distinction between a woman's role in the home and a man's role in the in the home, etc. It's just that they have this idea that the Bible is a male patriarchal book with a, a male God whose major uh, personalities and characters in the Bible and main movers in the Bible are men. And uh, they carry that right through, and they just think that this is the... And, and then they, don't forget their agenda. Uh, they want to have the right for abortion. The Bible knocks that and calls it murder. Uh, they can't bear the idea that you're calling something I should have a right to murder. But again, it's the church. Uh, I have said this in the pulpit very recently. The, the, the church is the last bastion that holds back the full-fledged 
control of the corruption that's coming in the end time. The church stands, as it were, as a wall holding this whole thing up. How long it will be able to stand before? Well, when the church is raptured, of course, uh, the Bible says uh, there will be a time of evil that the world has never seen. Hmm. That's because the, but the church is a restraining force at this point in time because the church is made up of born-again believers. And when born-again believers are raptured, the Holy Spirit that indwells the believer goes with the, 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 the believer and the church is left without any restraint whatsoever. So we have a restraining force right now. And uh, once that's gone, we begin to lose it. And we, we, we've lost a lot of it, by the way. For example, on another program, that in the mainline denominations, evolution has been accepted. We lost a lot there, and uh, and then of course in the mainline denominations, a lot of them now have homosexual pastors. They've got lesbian preachers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of that, but the fundamental churches, the churches that hold to Bible, biblical churches, the evangelical community in particular, is still that remnant of righteousness that restrains the full avalanche of evil that is coming to planet Earth, and we are restraining power. Pastor, is this verse, the verse you were talking about in relation to our question, 1 Corinthians one eighteen, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God? No, that, that, is, that could be applied to that, but there is a, there is a passage in, okay. in, uh, in the, if I had my concordance, I'd be able to race to it there. Uh, maybe I, we need to bring a concordance when we have here yeah. so we can actually have somebody trace it. But there is there where Paul talked about the offense of the gospel. And we'll get that particular verse online for the person. I have a quote here from Margaret Sanger. Uh, no woman can call herself free who does not control her own body. Well, again, I, I smile. Uh, that's the woman that started the Planned Parenthood. I remember that... Um, she was the same person that um, believed in eugenics. And of course, eugenics has to do with the idea of purifying the race. The whole idea behind Planned Parenthood, if you want to face the historical fact, her plan was to uh, uh, lower the population of minorities because minorities were seen as the lesser of the human race. Uh, she is no doubt a racist. Uh, but that doesn't shock me uh, that she would make a statement like that because she was purely anti-biblical and uh, she pushed for the control of, of the, the, the population, the minorities and, the, and stuff like that. That's why she wanted birth control to keep down the minority population. Uh, so I, that, doesn't, that doesn't surprise me. But again, uh, Sangster is one of those champions of the feminist movement. And I cannot understand if I had belo- if I belong to a certain racial group, why would I imbibe that kind of philosophy, that kind of thinking? It's like Bernie Sanders recently said that the way to control climate change is to uh, support all the abortion in the third world countries, pay for the abortion. I mean, wow. if I was a if I was a, a black person or Indian person or some other non-white person, and a politician made a statement like that. That's how he is going. To, he's using the the con- abortion to control climate change. I mean, it's madness. See, so when I heard that statement, I mm. said, "Bernie gone. Mm. He could never be the prime minister of America with the black population, and the other people, because a man making a statement like that, uh, I would be highly offended 
if I had uh, if that statement was made uh, and I heard it. So is it safe to say that if you take the Bible out of a country or out of a society as the foundation that you end up with just chaos? Well, look at what the world was before the scriptures came. Think about that for just a moment. What Take the Roman, Roman world, for example. You know, we talk about homosexuality, and we think there's something that's new and crazy. But it's the Christian church that destroyed Roman Christianity, I mean, the homosexuality in the, Christian, in the uh, first century world. The last 14 emperors of uh, the Roman Empire were all homosexuals. They all had a little boy. They had their wives, but they all had a little boy. It was called pedestry. Very common. When Christianity came on the scene, it wiped that off, right? Uh, think the idea of uh, uh, abandoning children to animals to be uh, what they call um, exposure. Who stopped that? It was the ancient Christianity that gave human life dignity so that the, the abortion of the ancient world, the first century world, and exposing children to, and just cast them aside, it was the Christian faith that changed all of that. So, I mean, you just look at what the first century world was. Read Romans chapter 1. The 19 um, indictments that are brought against humanity will give you an understanding what the moral state of the world was before the Christian faith came. See, And, and uh, don't, who stopped the burning of wives in India? You remember when a man died, his wife was now burnt with him on the, on the altar. You know that. Who stopped that? It was the interest of Christianity into India that brought about those kind of changes. I and mean, if we had enough time, I want to recommend a book I've said before. Go online and get that book, um, How Christianity Changed the World. Very interesting book. <laughs> Read that book. It's a fascinating book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that we don't have the exposure in the secular press and the secular media uh, and really bring these things to the fore. And as a result, people really don't understand the full impact of By the way, who brought about changes in the treatment of, 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 of um, people who were crazy, mad people? You know, at one time it was a joke to be mad. They put a hat on him and laugh at him. Uh, who brought about prison reform? Who started hospitals? Who started schools? Who started universities? It's all Christianity. So the idea that... Uh, but what has happened, we are now living on the remnants of the Christian faith. So even though we, we have knocked it out, there are still the, the residual remnants. We're benefiting from those remnants. But as, as we get further and further away, we're going to begin to see the rise of neo-paganism. Right? That's why we have it recently. I mean, a, a baby is born. But now, this, the, the, this, I think I forgot which state it was. Uh, Virginia. The governor is saying after the baby is born. I mean, it's born. It's alive. So now what you do, you, you go outside and you talk to the mom. What do you want me to do with this child? I mean, that thought, but that's how far we've gone away. So as we've gone away from Christianity, neo-paganism practices now begin to resurface again. We are now entering the era of neo-paganism. There's no doubt in my mind about being a post-Christian uh, world, and now we've got the neo-paganism raising itself. Pastor, outside of the fight for women's rights and gender equality, what else is on the agenda of the secular feminists? Well, the secular feminists, uh, as I said, we started out fighting for rights to for, uh, contracts, rights to own uh, property, rights to, to vote, uh, equality within the workplace, um, reproductive rights. I have right to 
contraception and prenatal care and then about uh, rights of inclination with no, no harassment in the workplace but it, it goes on further than that because remember the ultimate goal is to get rid of God either change the Bible or get rid of the Bible so their agenda is, 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 is amazing the one thing they want to reinstate is a goddess they want to remove the male god and so what they call a mother goddess and the argument by the way, is that if you check ancient histories, there are more female gods than there were male gods. So female gods dominated the landscape, and they get um, evidence from Mesopotamia, Egypt, Greece, Rome, and the Canaanites, and said, you see, what happened is that when Yahweh come, Yahweh is the one that really brought this whole thing, this Christmas. We had goddesses before. We were the Society was a matriarchal society. But this Jewish God, this Christian God came and mashed up this whole thing. <laughs> so they even they even claim, by the way, which is which is humorous, that the, the, the Canaanite god Asher, who was a female goddess, um, that it was a disappointment that Yahweh uh, destroyed Asher. Uh, again, that shows the male dominance against the female goddess. So it might surprise you, and it might shock people to understand that the whole idea is the restoration to the worship of a goddess. I um, listened to, uh, was it American Got Talent some time ago? I can't remember, but there was a, a lady there that is one of the, um, one of the judges, yeah. uh, Melby. Okay. Uh, Melby, I think it's a Mel- her and Melby. I remember there was a show where somebody asked her to write down a sheet of paper what she thought of herself. I, I remember that show very clearly. And a guy who was like a mind reader was able, oh, she whispered in somebody's ear what she thought of herself. And this mind reader was able to tell her exactly what, and you know what she said she thought she was? A goddess. A goddess. I, I listened, I heard, I could not believe with my ear. She said, I literally think I'm a goddess. See? But that's the goal of the thing, is to reinstate the worship of a female goddess. Get rid of this male Yahweh, this patriarchal god. Let's restore what it was before. It was a matriarchal world before you had the patriarchal world. It's just that Yahweh and the Jewish religion came in and and, uh, brought about this tremendous change. The other thing that they want to do, believe it or not, is the return to witchcraft. I know that might shock you. How is that connected? Because they believe that witches were women. Okay. And they had the power to heal, and they had knowledge that men didn't have. So it's men that got rid of witchcraft. They conspired to get rid of witchcraft because this was a secret knowledge women had, and they had understanding that the men didn't have. So it's again, it's a male-dominated society that has really made given this um, bad view of witchcraft. So their plan basically is to detoxify witchcraft and restore it to what it was before, a female practice where they had wisdom and knowledge of healing and doing things that men didn't have. Uh, that's another part of the agenda. By the way, that's why witchcraft has grown by leaps and bounds in the States. The other thing is that they want uh, the whole idea of, they don't like the label um, um, of, they want lesbianism to spread then. In other words, we don't want men dominating us and writing us anymore. Right? We are now liberated, so we don't need a man. So we must push the the lesbian agenda because we want to be free from male dominance. We don't want any 
relationship with men where they are writing us any longer. Again, so the idea we have to advocate for lesbianism. The other one is, uh, let me just read what um, one person said. Uh, this is Kate Miller, a feminist. This is her words. She said, women's liberation and homosexual liberation are both struggling towards a common goal. A society free from defining and categorizing people by virtue of gender and or sexual preference. Lesbians, lesbian is a label used as a psychic weapon to keep women locked into their own male-defined feminine role. In other words, men have labeled this word fem- uh, lesbian and uh, uh, given it a bad name because uh, they want it to be so toxic that women got to turn to men. So the label that is given there it really is a male label. So, uh, but they give us that that we seen something to be bad. It's not really bad, okay? So the whole idea is that the feminist, secular feminist, the agenda of the homosexual and the lesbian is the same as the feminine. And they are pushing that because they're fighting for the same thing. Get rid of a male-dominated society. The other thing is that they want to dissolve family. They want to get rid of the family, uh, um, is that because traditionally the woman is in submission to the husband? Or? Let me read what uh, Gloria Steinholm said. Women are urged to liberate themselves from Western patriarchal shackles by freeing themselves from their husbands and children to pursue an authentic personal fulfillment. So marriage is... Not allow me to fulfill what I want. You know, I should be free without having kids. I shouldn't have a husband telling me what to do. I shouldn't have to care for kids. I should just live an authentic life just about me and what I want to do. And that is why, again, the home is under so much attack. It's part of the feminist agenda to do away with the family as it is, the nuclear family. And then the other thing that they are pushing as far as the agenda is abortion. Um this is a practice that is championed and they feel it's essential for the freedom so that a woman uh, bodily would not have a bodily restraint uh, in a male-dominated society by having to bear children. Let me give you a quote. Where does it say that every little soul that manages to land in a fertile egg is entitled to occupancy on earth? Okay. And then abortion is a prerogative it is also our responsibility. That's the mm-hmm. language, the feminist language. So when you begin to see in politics the pushing for abortion and the pushing for the doing away with the nuclear family, the idea that the family can now be two women or two men, is all part of the idea we don't want a, a male-dominated society any longer. And then the other thing is, of course, you don't need to turn to any Christian god um, uh, what you have to understand that you have to do self-redemption and save yourself. And I want to read what um, Starhawk, a feminist priestess, says. She said, The image of the goddess, that is symbol of a goddess, inspires women to see themselves as divine. Their bodies are sacred. Uh, the changing phases of their life as holy. God exists within the female psyche. Self is God. See? So we don't have a, a God that is transcendent, the Christian God that's above us. Uh, we've got to understand that we ourselves uh, are God. So we've got to save ourselves and we got to identify ourselves as God within us. So when you look at um, 
it's more than just no politics. It's more than more than just no um, economic power and political power. It's about changing the whole social fabric and the religious um, ambience of the entire society. But that is their agenda, and they are pushing it and pushing it. And, of course, they've been fairly successful because it's such an aggressive movement, such a powerful movement, that even politicians now are scared of the feminine vote, and they're falling in line with the feminist agenda, pretty much legislating according to what the feminists want. Uh, and, and that is, trend is going to continue unless we have a revival, unless the church stands up for truth, which in these days is, is, is so small uh, in terms of the, the body of Christians who are willing to take a stand for truth. But if there's not a revival and the church does not keep on standing against the growth of this movement, um, it will overtake us and we're going to suffer the consequences. I want to spend a little bit of time delving deeper into uh how this topic relates to the Bible and how those two realms meet. Uh, you've already covered the fact that the secular feminists are have affected the modern church. You've talked about that a little bit, given a brief overview or kind of wet our appetite for it. And you mentioned that there are evangelical feminists or an evangelical feminist movement pushing for full gender equality, for the destruction of those destructive roles and the functions within the home and the church. Why is this? And can you expound on that some? Well, um, it's clearly that the, the kind of agenda that the secular feminists have the evangelical uh, community of feminists are not going to be on, on the same agenda. Uh, I mean, they're not for abortion. They're not for lesbianism. They're not for witchcraft. They're not for the... But the feminist movement has affected the church, and uh, it has now infiltrated the church. And some of the things that the secular feminists want are now becoming major planks within the the evangelical movement. And this is happening, especially in particular with roles and functions. Uh, the evangelical feminists want to remove the the roles within even family, that the man is no longer the head and the woman is no longer the, this. In other words, it is everybody in the same level. It's not that the man is the head and the woman must submit to him. They want to do away with that. They don't want that into the church, you only have male pastors. That the, the ministry has been, uh, the leadership in the church has been designated by God. Uh, they don't want that. They want, again, to be on par. So they want women preachers. They want women deacons. They want anything a man does in the church, any function he performs, any role he performs, they want that to be available to women based on their gifts. So they, their argument would be that God gives gifts to people and we must operate within the realm of gifts. No, that is no question about that. But the question has to be as well, does God specify roles and does God specify functions? So it's not just a matter of looking at the matter of gifts. You also have to look at the matter of functional roles that are given in Scripture. The other thing is that the major problem here, uh, Nathan, that has caused this uh, has to do with the difference in opinion of how you exegete a passage of Scripture 
Define exegete for me. Exegete is um, coming to understanding what the passage actually says, examining the grammar, um, examining the etymology of words, um, looking at comparing text with text, um, um, doing a word study, uh, basically trying to come up to what does this passage say, okay? And then the second thing that that has to do is after you find out what the passage says, how do you interpret the passage? What principles of hermeneutics do you bring to bear to the passage to decide is this passage here only a reference for a local position or is this universally applicable to the church? You see, uh, So is this an ad hoc advice that Paul is giving for that local church alone or is what Paul is saying relevant and normative for all churches irrespective of what time, what place, whatever it is. This is the big debate. And what the feminists have done is that they have taken certain passages of Scripture and they have said that these passages are culturally defined and time-defined and locally defined. They are not normative for the church across the board. This is for this church that Paul wrote to. But Paul did not intend that that teaching would be normative for every church even the first century church or even the church today. So what Paul told the Ephesians was for the Ephesians. It wasn't necessary for the Thessalonians. That is the problem you're having today. So the the hermeneutic, the, the, the method of interpretation has become the cardinal issue of this movement. And they have got a different way of interpreting than would have been the hum, uh, what we call the historical grammatical way of interpreting. Uh, they are more looking at the cultural interpretation uh, in dealing with this matter. Let me, let me use an example here, if I might use uh, something here. Um, take the, the matter of the passage in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul talks about the, the matter that um, the headship of man, man and that uh, women should not have authority over men because... Um, number one, he says, Adam was made first. Number two, it was not Adam who was first transgressed, but Eve was the one that was deceived, being in transgression. The Apostle Paul uses those two arguments to establish the fact that women should not uh, teach men, uh, especially teach doctrine, and be um, head or leaders within the church. They would uh, take a passage like that and said, you know, what Paul was dealing with was a situation there where Timothy was ministering at Ephesus. They had some false teachers who came in. Uh, later on, he would talk about widows, and uh, these widows started misbehaving themselves and taking on certain rules that didn't belong, that, that should not be done. And Paul is writing to correct that local situation. So the fact that Paul said a woman should not uh, have authority over men or teach men. That only referred to uh, the situation in Ephesus. It didn't refer to Thessalonica. It doesn't refer to today. It was a local situation. You're it saying that's what the feminists would say. Yeah, that, that's, that's their argument. Their argument is that's a local um, application. It's an ad hoc advice uh, Paul had given, but it has no relevance for our time, and it has no universal application. That is the, uh, that's the kind of hermeneutic that's used. But here's it. Uh, when you look at the reasons Paul gave... It has nothing to do with the culture. The reason Paul gave is rooted in the creation story. It's written in the fall. Because this happened, this is why God has restricted 
uh, the role of women to play the leadership role in the church and teach men. It has nothing to do that of a cultural issue Paul was discussing. He rooted it in the fact of the creation story and that when God created Adam first, that was not an accident. God created Adam first because God intended Adam to be the leader, to be the teacher, whatever it is. The fact that Eve fell also uh, is another reason why God has restricted. And again, again, so these are not cultural reasons. So that passage is applicable across the board. That's a universal application. That is something that refers to the church in every age because it is grounded not in cultural in the culture, it is grounded in the biblical story of creation, and that doesn't change. Okay, so I'm hearing you say that there's different ways to interpret whether something was specific for that time period or whether it's universal. Uh, but how do I, as a believer, in 2019, how do I open my Bible and determine what is applicable today and what was applicable just for that church or for that time period? Well, um, let me give you some ideas of um, when you come to a text and you're trying to determine whether it is a local situation, whether it's an ad hoc application or it has universal application, is something that is uh, normative for the church in every age. Uh, whenever you come to a passage and you're trying to decide that, you've got to ask certain questions of the text. Right, because it's you got to have certain hermeneutical principles to, to. One would be, does the context limit the recipient or the application, whatever it was received or the application, whatever? Does it limit that culturally? Is it clear that it's being limited culturally? Let me use an example. We greet each other different today, don't we? The Bible says greet each other with a, what? Holy, a kiss. holy kiss. But clearly, that's a cultural thing that is, is there. Uh, although I would not be offended if somebody, uh, you know, I know the French when they miss to kiss each other on each other's cheek. We don't do that in the Western world. That is something that is culturally defined. That, that, is, not, that is not something. Uh, I'll the, test the, your comfort with that next Tuesday evening <laughs> when you show up. <laughs> I don't think most people today, generally speaking, would want another man coming, especially in this age where you don't know who is who. Uh, kissing you on the cheek, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so that, that would be a cultural defined. And I think looking at the context, the idea is to greet people. Mm-hmm. Today we greet them with a shake, a handshake. Sometimes we might even get a, an embrace. There are some churches that even desist from the embrace because of the level of immorality and the, the contact again. Uh, and there's sometimes it's appropriate. For example, I would greet an older woman in my church with a hug. You would hardly ever see me, if it happens, she did it, where I would embrace a, a, a woman or a young lady and bring her to, to, to my bosom. I wouldn't do that because I don't think that is proper for me as a male in light of what the society is like. But I would embrace an elderly woman who is about my age or older than I am, right? So that would be a matter. The other thing is, does this subsequent revelation limit the recipient or the application? In other words, he said something here, but does he say something later that gives it very clear that this is limited and applied to that situation only? Okay. Thirdly, uh, is this specific teaching in conflict with other biblical teaching? Okay. Uh, or is it in harmony with other biblical teaching? See? Uh, for example, what Paul says in, in Timothy is in harmony with what the book of Genesis says and the whole concept of creation. Right? Uh, fourthly, is the reason for a norm given in Scripture, and is that reason treated as normative? 
Again, Paul gives the reason why there should be the norm in the church. And later on, he would say uh, in, in the passage, if people don't do the tradition that we've just handed to you, mark that man and have nothing to do with him. So clearly, the application is there and is intended to be across the board. Um, fifthly, it's a specific teaching, normative as well as the principle normative. So, um, and then um, number six, does the Bible treat the historic context as normative? In other words, if you read in the passage, you're trying to understand the passage, you look at the context, does it seem very clearly that this is intended to be a normative thing, and that's how the Bible treats it? And lastly, does the Bible treat the cultural context as limited? Uh, if it's dealing with something, and it's very, very clear, it's only dealing with a local situation. Uh, uh, for example, let me use another example. Our culture is different than it was in Corinthians. Uh, for, you remember Paul says he advised that people remain single, as he was, and he gave reasons. Mm -hmm. And what reason he gave? Because of the current situation. So he's dealing with a local situation. In light of what you're going through right now, my recommendation to you is that you don't get married, you remain single. But that's not normative. That's not normative. So it's very clear that Paul is dealing specifically with a situation in Corinthians where the situation is so dire that uh, to go into a marriage at that juncture would jeopardize your, your, your future and jeopardize your success or whatever, your health, whatever it is. But it's clearly that the intention there, that's not normative because Paul says that's where I recommend that uh, the young women marry. That's in t Timothy. So you see the difference? Yeah. One is clearly dealing with a local situation because of the, the, the pressure of the time. I recommend to you that marriage is not the best thing at this point in time. But then in Timothy, now he says, I recommend that you women, younger women, marry because you don't get married and get into trouble. So you've got to decide which is really, in the, is he dealing with a cultural situation where the application is to that local situation alone, or is it very, very clear from what he says that this is across the board? So remind me again, if someone were to say to me, Nathan, but Paul, when that admonition was given that women aren't supposed to be pastors, that was just a specific to that church in that time period. What's the biblical answer to yeah, that? The biblical answer is this. What reasons does Paul give? Okay. Right? Uh, Paul does not say, I am recommending this because in, 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 in ancient culture, women didn't teach or women didn't... Um, um, women didn't have authority over men. Yeah. So I'm saying to you, fill into the culture. He doesn't say that. He gives the reason. Here is the reason why a woman should not teach and rule over man. Number one, God created Adam first. So in the order of creation, it was God's intention that man would have headship. If he had intended Eve to be headship, she would have been made first. Second thing he says, there is something that brought um, a restriction on women because of the fall. Adam was not the one deceived. Eve was deceived. As a result of that, uh, God is saying quite frankly, you know, I don't want to be a male chauvinist here, but it's significant that the devil didn't go to Adam, right? He went to Eve. And I have said this, and I'll say it again. Any man that's a good talker and can communicate well, he can disarm a woman very easily because women love conversation. They love intimacy. Men know that. They exploit that. And I think the enemy knew that. And rather than go to, 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 to Adam. And then, you know, uh, I think Adam would have said, God said you shouldn't eat. End of story, bam. But as long as she keeps talking and keeps talking, she starts giving them reason. It was not long before she fell for the devil's trick. And that in itself indicates that um, that tendency 
um, God restricted the role of a woman as the leader and the teacher of a male. So the biblical reason is given. It's rooted in creation. It's not rooted in culture. And that's how I would answer that kind of a question. So are you saying then that women are more apt to be deceived and are not as intelligent as men? No, it's not a matter of uh, apt to be deceived or intelligent. Yeah, apt to deceive, yes, for, but not, not the matter of intelligence because she was made in the image of God and, and Adam was made in the image of God. It's not a matter of intelligence. But there is a tendency for uh, a, woman, a woman to be more easily deceived than a man is deceived. That's, by the way, why we have this serious population problem, where we have so many women in a house, they've got four different children from four different men. How did, they get, how did that happen? How did that happen? Right. That's the dilemma. I meet that almost regularly. I can tell story after story, and you wonder about, okay, one man deceive you. Would you wise up to the next guy that comes your way? But if you look at it, look at it, look in the Caribbean, look all over the world, uh, the possibility of being allowing her feelings to get the better of her uh, clearly is one of the marks. And I believe that that is the part of the reason why God has restricted uh, this, this teaching of doctrine and teaching of uh, biblical truth to men. Uh, God has decided that that's what he wants. And that's not an old-fashioned approach? Even if it is old-fashioned, uh, whether it's old-fashioned or not, it's a biblical mandate that is given in Scripture. Uh, whether we feel it's old-fashioned or not, uh, we are here not to abuse Scripture or go contrary to Scripture. Our duty is to find out what God says and obey Scripture. And even if it's not popular with the modern age, and uh, there are lots of things in the Bible that are not popular with the modern age, uh, our job is not to curry favor uh, the age in which we live. Our job is not to do things to please people. Our job is not to win the favor of the world. Our job is to hold to biblical truth. And we know one thing, the ideology and the philosophy of the world is quite contrary to God's word, so we're going to end up in a clash. And that's okay, because I'd rather be on the side of truth than to surrender truth in the interest of gaining uh, favor with the world. Pastor, we have Nathan calling from Nevis. Thank you for the call, Nathan. And go ahead quickly with your question, please. I would. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Um, I would like to draw attention to two passages of Scripture okay, in go the ahead. Old Testament. Go ahead. One sir. is from Judges 17, uh-huh. verse 6. Okay. And what it says there. There was no king in Israel in those days, and every man did that which was right in his own eye. Yes, sir. And then Daniel chapter 8 and verse 20, verse 23. Yes, sir. Which says, In the latter days of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark things shall shall and mighty shall shall stand okay, up you could read it just stand Daniel up yes. chapter 8 and verse yeah. 23 
Yeah, well, look, the one in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, uh, talks about the complete moral breakdown within Israel because there was no political leader, no king that gave direction to the nation. We are currently witnessing that today, uh, the breakdown of authority, especially uh, moral authority. Uh, in the case of Israel, it's political authority, but don't, don't forget that Israel was a theocracy, and all these judges were ruling in connection under the sovereignty of God. And uh, when there was uh, reached the stage where uh, without having moral authority in the person of the king or the ruler, uh, the nation went into disintegration. We're having the same problem today, um, and I don't have to tell you that we're coming to the point now where everybody is doing everything that they want to do in their own sight. They don't want to be told anything because, again, there's no moral standard, no absolute moral standard that's th- right. that people hold to. And that's because we've gone away from the Christian truth, which was the foundation of Western civilization. We all knew that stealing was wrong. We all knew that rape was wrong. We all knew that murder was wrong. We all knew that fornication was wrong. We all knew that uh, adultery was wrong. We all knew that at one time. We all knew it was wrong to curse God's name and use God's name in vain. That's no longer true today. Uh, the The average uh, person was brought up without uh, a Bible base. Uh, not even in our schools do they have a Bible base any longer. So we're living with a secular age of a generation that is Bible illiterate and has no moral underpinnings. And uh, so we're headed to that direction. The other one in Daniel chapter 8 has to do with the Antichrist. He's coming. The the Antichrist is going to come, king of fear. He's coming, and he's going to deceive the world and lead the world astray. So what, what we need to check is that the scriptures say when the transgressors are come to the full. Uh-huh. In, Dan, in Daniel also, he says, the wicked shall do wickedly. Yes, but also remember that in the uh, book of Genesis, uh, when the Lord told Abraham that he's going to send him into captivity for 430 years, and the reason he gave for that is the iniquity of the Amorites is not right. In other words, people blame God and say that God was so terrible in obliterating the Canaanite population from the land of Canaan and allowed the Israelites, but God gave the Canaanite people 430 years to repent. It's only when their iniquity had reached a stage where it was at the point, the cup was full. It is then that God brought Israel to deal with them. So God was merciful 430 years, and rather than turn to God, they turned to evil. Because if you uh, study um, some of the archaeological books of uh, what Canaanite society was like, there are some depictions, of uh, graphic depictions in caves, for example, and in places you can't put them in a book. The, 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 the immorality is so gross what those people used to do. That's why when you read the book of Leviticus, God said, you must not do these things that were being done in the land of Canaan. And he talked like bestiality and incest and all of that. Because that's what society had become. It's completely broken down. And it became a moral cancer. And God decided, I'm going to deal with it now. 430 years is enough time. And he wiped off that civilization. He did the same thing with the flood. And the Antichrist is going to come at that moment when God sees the cup of iniquity of our time is completely full and God says it's time now to act, bring his program into place. This cannot continue indefinitely. There are limits to God's grace and there are limits to God's mercy. God is long-suffering, but the day is coming when that long-suffering will stop. Every rope has an end. And even God's mercy has an end. And the Bible warns us that when that end of mercy is, is, has come, the world will enter a stage, the Bible says, there has never been, nor will there ever be a time like that. The Bible talks, it's called the Great Tribulation. So it's coming. 
Thank you very much for your call, Nathan. We appreciate your call from the island of Nevis. Keep listening. Keep encouraging others to listen to the program. In the time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.49. We have nine minutes left in this episode of That's Truth. We are discussing this evening the topic of feminism. Let me use another example that I was talking about. One of the key texts that the feminists use, uh, the evangelical feminists, is Galatians 3.28. They say that that is the center of the feminist movement and that all the other uh, verses in Scripture about women in the New Testament ought to be filtered through that. That's the filter. And you remember what that verse says? There's neither bond nor free. Mm-hmm. They neither Jew nor Gentile. They neither male nor female. Nor female. Mm-hmm. So they said this is the this is the filter. You interpret every other passage dealing with women in the New Testament. And this is like you put this on the speckles spectacles. They neither male nor female. So how, whatever interpretation you you are going to come to, it must be filtered through that. They neither male nor female. But again. If you read the context of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, it has to do with the whole matter of our standing before God in respect to our salvation. It has nothing to do with functional roles in the church or functional roles in the home. There are other passages like Ephesians that talk about the man is the head and the woman must submit, uh, should submit to her husband. Peter, uh, how do you win your, your, your unsaved husband? With a meek and a quiet spirit, somebody, even a Sarah. Those are things that talk about functional roles within the home. This passage is not even a functional. It's talking about my standing before God. God, no, 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 either if a man was a slave or a man was a master, it made no difference to God. Whether you're male or female, it made no difference to God in respect to your salvation and your standing with God in terms of um, your access to Him. So they take a passage like this. As I said, the key thing here, the, the war today in, uh, about against the evangelical uh, movement and against Christianity, it has more to do with the method of interpretation than anything else. Right? A lot of the cultic failures and the cultic errors is, again, the matter of interpretation. It's a, that's where the battle is going to be and where the battle is. How do I interpret a passage and what biblical principles, what hermeneutical principles I bring to the passage to make get clarity? In conjunction with that interpretation, we have a text message from what a WhatsApp message from Antigua. In the context of what you are teaching, Pastor, can you please address head coverings? My view on head covering is, is not going to be popular. I do believe that uh, married women should have a covering, okay? I don't make an issue of it so I, I could split the church. I ministered in St. Lucia for nine, ten years, and I have known in St. Lucia churches split over this matter of head covering. The way that was solved eventually is that the churches that were convinced that they should be head covering, when you visited the church, you use head covering, the churches that didn't feel uh, you didn't have to do that. But that seemed a compromise because the, the interpretation was dividing the the group. What happens is that, you know, when a missionary comes to a country and he comes from, a, a, say, from a country church in the States, a different than a city church, he comes with certain thoughts, certain ideas. So what he does, not that he does it out of error, he really was taught that. So he comes to the church and teaches people that, oh, the other thing is in St. Lucia that you shouldn't wear jewelry. No jewelry at all. Wow. So churches were f- split over that as well. 
right? Baptist churches, split over jewelry because the Bible's. But again, if you read the context of that, it's talking about extravagance. Yeah. Right? It's not about having on a watch or having on a chain or whatever it is. But my point is, coming back to the head issue, I am very convinced when you read uh, Corinthians. Uh, by the way, there's a program where I, I, I spoke about this before that Paul gives several reasons why a woman should have a covering, uh, 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 at least a married person. Several reasons Paul gives. Paul talks about the, the angels observing authority within the church. The angels are angelic beings, and they observe that even within the Godhead, there's a hierarchy of authority. And uh, Paul talks about having a current because of the angels. Um, uh, Paul talks about the fact of nature showing that a woman should have a covering because normally, generally speaking, a woman here is much longer than a man. Paul used that argument. Nature itself is in harmony with the idea that a woman should cover her head. Uh, that's another reason. And um, the other thing is that um, I, people say that uh, the reason why Paul taught that is because the women in Corinth were shaving their head. And I use an argument some time ago, it doesn't make any sense, because Paul says if she doesn't have a covering, it's as if she's shaved. But if she shaved, it's obvious she don't have a covering. <laughs> so the argument, it cannot be that the women shave the head and Paul is arguing that uh, you treat her as though she should be shaved when she's already shaved. So, but I am of the opinion that when it comes to the church, within uh, married people, for sure, married women should have on their head a symbol of authority. Now, there are people that believe that women should have a symbol of a male authority, and some people don't think it's necessarily the hat. Some people think it's the ring, right? In our culture, it's the ring as opposed to the hat. That is where the interpretation gets a little bit difficult, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why I said I would not split a church over this matter, because there are good men on both sides. Uh, but I do feel that if you are going to church where the principle is that we wear hats, I think it is proper that when the ladies go to that church, they wear a hat. You don't go to the church and say, well, I'm going to prove to you that I don't need to wear a hat. You don't do those kind of things, right? Christian liberty, Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> not to offend. We must not yeah. offend our brother in a way that we cannot. I mean, look, there are a lot of things that um, even as a pastor would like to change sometime and, and insist on it, but... I am coming where I had a pastor before me that taught the people on this matter different than I believe, and I don't think I have to, at this juncture, split the church over an issue like that. And uh, so my position, I teach it, by the way, if I go into the book of Corinthians, I would teach it, but um, the church has never practiced it, to my knowledge, uh, since I've been there, and uh, even though I feel that it's a proper thing to do. Episode 11 was an episode we did on head coverings in relation to this topic. Okay. So if you're interested for more information, you can go again on Google and search That's Truth Podcast. Look for episode 11 or one titled Head Coverings, and you'll have 60 minutes of wealth of information on that topic. Pastor, I don't know if we've got enough time to finish up this topic tonight. We've got a minute and a half left in this particular episode. Uh, any other additional information that you'd like to cover or maybe address the topic of was the Bible really a patriarchal yeah. book? What I, what I would like to do, don't can't do it tonight. Maybe we'll explore it a little bit uh, next week. Uh, but I really think that one of the best things we can do is to, because this movement is so aggressive and so militant, and so skewed in terms of what it is saying about the Bible, uh, being a male chauvinistic book and suppressing uh, women for so many years, et cetera, et cetera, and making the major characters in the Bible the leading ones, et cetera, et cetera. 
uh, I think what we one of the things that we can do is actually go to the Bible itself and begin to identify women and the role that women played in the Bible. And you'll see that God affirmed women in multiple spheres, in the home, in the family, even in religion and public worship. And, uh, you know, their role in Scripture is varied and very vigorous. Uh, When you begin to, it's just sometimes that we don't study the Bible from that angle. And I think because we don't do that, we don't put so much emphasis for it. But I think it would be very helpful to be able to go to in each section of the Bible and pull out women that God identifies and the role that they played and the significance that they had. And even when you look at Abraham uh, and you look at his wife, you'll see the predominant role as well that she played even in the redemptive story of bringing the, the Messiah in. And look at Hagar, for example. Do you know that Hagar is only one of three women in the Bible that spoke to God directly? I never realized that. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating. I mean, think about that for just... And what, who was Hagar, by the way? Hagar was an Egyptian okay. that gave birth to Ishmael. Yeah. But yet she's only one of three women that God ever gave the privilege to speak to directly. Pastor, would you ever advise that a Christian woman identify herself as a feminist? I would be very leery of uh, using that kind of language because it has become tarnished because of the secular movement. Um, I I would be very careful and very watchful. Uh, Maybe over time it would lose the stigma stigma of it and then it might be proper. But at this point in time, I think we need to be very careful lest we be roped in together and they be perceived by using that word that they think they have the same secular agenda. So be very careful. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Have a great evening and God bless. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.